Hello, my friends, and welcome back to the Kokoro Movement Podcast. This time we are joined by Dr. Philip Snell. He is a chiropractor based out of Portland, Oregon, and has websites such as fixyourownback.com and myrehabexercise.com. Uh, we had a really fun conversation. I hope you enjoy it. And without further ado, Dr. Philip Snell. So let's uh, give everybody a little bit of a background on who you are and how you got started, um, just for the people that don't know you. Uh, well, I'm a practicing uh, uh, chiropractor in Portland, Oregon. Uh, my focus is on uh, rehab and sports medicine, uh, which basically means that uh, my patients uh almost always get an exercise prescription uh, as a way to help them uh, manage their pain situations, which most generally they're coming in uh, for. also see people for performance, but uh, it's a little less common. Uh, pain is more my bailiwick. And uh, I'm adjunct faculty at University of Western States Chiropractic College here in Portland. Um, our clinic has been the... Um, treatment site for the two largest uh, federally funded grants. Both were NIH grants um, for studying uh, neck pain and back pain. Um, and they're the, the largest federally funded grants in the uh, history of my profession. So oh, right we, try, we try to stay on the, uh, the evidence side of things there. Also uh, quite interested in uh, manual therapy and whether it works or not and when it does, why it does and all of that stuff. Yeah, that's so that's kind of how I found out about you as I was um, listening to the Kabuki Strength podcast, you know, about a year and a half ago. Um, mm -hmm. Heard you on there talking about um, the new manual therapy that you were developing. And then, you know, Two weeks later, I get an email from you, and I'm like, why is this guy emailing me? That's the weirdest thing ever. Open up the email, and you were giving me information because you were hosting uh, DNS Level 3 up there in Portland. So then I was taking the class from you, and I was like, this is perfect. Now I can ask this guy about, you know, everything that he's talking about. Um, and then you know how those DNS courses go. It's just go, go, go from the minute you get there until the minute you leave. So I actually never got a chance to uh, talk to you about it. Um, but then uh, shortly afterwards, you came out with YAP, which um, has kind of transferred into the dermal traction method. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you could, uh, you know, give us your thoughts on that. <laughs> and maybe, uh, maybe a little, maybe a little background on, uh, on that. Um, so I've, Always, uh, I guess way back in the day, I was kind of influenced by um, uh, Joe Campbell's work. Uh, some of you you might know of him. It's the uh, he's famous for the Power of Myth series with uh, uh, Bill Moyers and had a book uh, among several called uh, The Hero's Journey. But uh, Campbell was always a an, a strong advocate for mixing across professions. He was big in uh, anthropology and history and psychology, and uh, you know I've I've always felt somewhat similarly that uh, you know reading across literature um, was uh, was helpful in one's profession. I've always been uh, very much interested in manual therapy from um, even before. Uh, when I was into uh, uh, went into Cairo school, um, and remained so as I went along, um, and um, 
as I was going through my, my training, um, something that kept popping up was fascia. And another thing that kept popping up was the influence of um, uh, mechanical interface problems with small neurology and with peripheral neurology. So uh, to make that as, um, put it on as simple a terms as possible, is when, when nerves aren't moving very well relative to the structures that they course through, then uh, they can be prone to, um, shall we say, hot spots on them or irritation. Right. So um, at the uh, the nerve root level, we've got the work of um, folks like Robin McKenzie, um, MDT, and a lot of folks have uh, had some exposure to that as a uh, repetitive end range loading of joint complexes to, uh, to help with that. Um, at the peripheral nerve level, uh, we go back to a handful of people, uh, people like uh, Alf Brieg, uh, a uh, neurosurgeon from uh, back in the 70s, I think it was, um, Bob Elvey, um, David Butler, and more recently Michael Shacklock, especially his work has really advanced our understanding of peripheral um, mechanic, peripheral nerve mechanics. And um, as I was learning this material um, and quite caught up in the you know, myofascial trigger points and what those things are and, and you know, what, uh, what we think they are, um, there was a bit of a shift in, in way of thinking. The paradigm kind of started to moving towards the possibility that myofascial trigger points, rather than being a phenomena specifically of muscle, were more uh, were very possibly a phenomena of mechanical interface dysfunction between um, small neurology, cutaneous nerves that um, course very close to the skin, and muscles and uh, uh, fascia. Right. At about the, at about the same time, I was doing a lot of um, training in uh, fascial manipulation from uh, the Stecco folks out of uh, Italy. And uh, it dawned on me one day while I was sitting in their, their class that, holy shit, this is, this is what we're working with. They're, they're really focused on the fascia itself as a possible cause for um, musculoskeletal dysfunction and, uh, and or pain syndromes. And um, I, I was like, wow, these, it's not, so much that maybe as the fascia is sort of the highway system uh, where the small neurology courses through and maybe the work that they're doing on the fascia is actually affecting the mechanical interface of small neuro. Yeah. So I got, I got really interested in that. And the the downside about the fascial manipulation stuff is you got to spend about three or four minutes on uh, each particular point that they identify um, and those particular points you got to treat uh, three to five in a treatment session so you can spend all your time doing that and uh, then I then I don't have any time in my treatments to be able to teach people how to help themselves with exercise and stuff right so I started to uh, try to brainstorm how I might be able to do that and started playing with uh, uh, skin rolling and suction cups. So I'd put suction cups on the uh, the points themselves and then have a person go through uh, some sort of, uh, um, for lack of a better word, functional movement pattern, uh, call it a triplanar movement, complex movements. And um, I started to get some, uh, some payoff from that. So um, one thing led to another on that. Uh, I worked with it for couple of years and I uh, was pretty pleased with what I was seeing but it was you know just me in my office at that particular point in time and I, I didn't completely trust what I was seeing I didn't know if it was reproducible yeah so when I had uh, started to bring students into my office um, as associates um, one of the early associates that I had was Dr. Justin Dean um, and uh, Justin uh, I you know, 
one of the first things we did was to put him through the, the STECO courses, the fascial manipulation courses, and um, and get him really familiar with uh, David Butler's work with the uh, sensitive nervous system, which talks a bit about that mechanical interface. Right. And then I showed him then I showed him what I'd been working on, and I said, "All right, I want you to try this on your patients and see what see what happens." So he did, and uh, came back in the room, you know, like shaking his head, like I have no idea why this is working as well as it is. Right, but it is stupid simple and it seems to work not all the time but but when it works it's it's like the you know the money ball right so um that uh uh justin got really interested in it and started playing with it more and studying it more about the uh the small neurology and and uh because that you know it's in terms of tissue strata in the human body there aren't that many areas of um, or fields of endeavor that really explore small cutaneous neurology. Right. So it kind of gets short shrift out there. And, you yeah. know, you learn about that in your gross anatomy classes and then rapidly uh, forget about it um, yep. once, you, once you get out of school. So uh, we were brainstorming one day, and I said, uh, Justin, where where should we go? What other fields might be looking at this from a different angle that we might be able to learn from? So we thought about it, thought about it, and like, how about anesthesiology? Uh, they've got to do nerve block, um, nerve block procedures, and in order to do so, they they need to try to target areas where multiple nerve target nerves cross uh, or are nearby and are close to the surface. So theoretically, if they're close to the surface, we might be able to get some kind of mechanical advantage on them. And uh, I said, cool, let's go with that. So he was just building his practice at the time and had more, um, plenty of time. And I was, you know, booked to the gills, so I didn't have any time. So I went on Amazon and I ordered like the, the first six textbooks that I could find on uh, in anesthesiology on nerve block procedure. And when they came in, I dropped them on his desk and I said, here, read these. Tell me everything I need to know. <laughs> <laughs> Man, that's helpful, yeah. <laughs> so so uh, Justin, uh, to his credit, actually did. Uh, he dived in deep and he, he came back out with several several things and several points that um, we've hit paid on. Um, it's interesting to note, too, that a lot of these "Quote unquote points that we're working on uh, are highly correlational to um, frequently uh, needle acupuncture points on meridian lines, right? And um, and commonly needled acupuncture, uh, excuse me, commonly needled uh, or treated uh, myofascial trigger points, and uh, they correlate with a lot of the STECO centers of coordination and stuff that they work with in fascial manipulation." Right. So, uh, you know, it's there's really nothing new out there. There's just different ways of looking at stuff and different ways of packaging it. And right. I'm not real big on selling crap, so uh, we uh, we just kind of chuckled about this for a number of a number of uh, months, actually, in the office uh, as we steadily kind of learned a little bit more and and got better at what we were doing. And, uh, you know, they, Justin and then Ben Ramos was in our office at that time too. Benjamin Ramos is a chiropractor down in, uh, LA, uh, excuse me, San Diego. And, uh, Justin's now in LA, but, um, they, uh, they kept saying, you know, you ought to, you ought to do something with this, you know, you ought to make, make this into something. And I just kind of smirk and I'm like, man, this is so dirt simple right for to teach a patient how to do and and to and to get really good clinical effect on it. i mean what are you going to build build it out of well tell the people tell people where the points are and how long to work on them and how to work on them and all that stuff and how to move once you're working on them like, all right all right and then you know they they pointed out that you know if you don't do it somebody else is 
And when they do it, they're going to charge a thousand bucks for a weekend course and, you know, several thousand dollars a year to, uh, to maintain some kind of certification. And then you're going to be pissed off about it. And I'm like, you know, you're, you're exactly right. Right. So, you know, we started joking first that that we, we just kind of, uh, screw around with it on social media. We put out, we, we troll it out there on social media. Like, I just, uh, just yapped someone, sh- uh, you know, five years of shoulder pain gone in one session with yap. You know, hashtag right. yap. We, we couldn't decide what to call it. I guess, uh, the yap thing came out. We couldn't decide what to call it. And we were just being very cynical in the office. Well, it's got to have an acronym. It's got to right. be a three letter acronym. <laughs> so, right. So, uh, you know, we figured we were working with pain and taking pain away. So we had the A and the P and then ultimately we put the Y on the front for yank. Yeah. And that was our, our very tongue in cheek way of addressing it. Yeah. A lot of people obviously thought we were just, you know, jerking, jerking around and, uh, uh, didn't think that it was, you know, serious what we were doing. And even early on, we, we'd tell people, Hey, you know, yeah, I'm doing all this stuff with Yap. And people would come back on on social media and they'd say, hey, what's this stuff about Yap? Where can I read more about it? Where can I take a course on it? And we joked that we were going we were gonna to put a registration page up for a course that was, you know, going to be $1,000 or something like that. And then when people would go to the court, the registration page, <laughs> we'd rickroll them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we never quite got that, that far along. <laughs> so, but, uh, yeah. It's, uh, the, the, of, the name change came because uh, it actually has taken off a bit. We put a little website together, uh, and instead of charging a thousand bucks a year or for a weekend course, it's fifty dollars a a, uh, a year for membership to the course, and you can learn pretty much everything there is on it right there. Right. So go to yankawaypain.com and for 50 bucks you can get, uh, you can figure out why you should be pulling on scan instead of mashing everything with a lacrosse ball. <laughs> right. So, you know, I came from, um, I've been a licensed massage therapist for three years and, you know, just coming out of massage school, I'm just realizing that I don't know anything and they don't, like the massage space is so basic and so then it's like one of those things where you know what's common knowledge to you isn't common knowledge to everybody else and so just the way that i heard you explain it on that podcast i was like ah that's what cupping is and that's how i can explain to people what cupping therapy is and what it does and you know that was just a really important you know revelation to me and then you know uh going back to you know the fascia is the highway then you can start kind of explaining to people why that spot is in pain because like if you've ever been in traffic in LA or you know like I'm from Arizona so Phoenix Arizona then you can see how agitated you are compared to like free-flowing traffic and so that's how the nerves are right so that they're if they're stuck in that fashion they can't move anywhere then they're going to be really pissed off when you mash on them and push on them so then Mm -hmm. you know just the obvious solution which is completely opposite of what like the massage therapy space is is just like take pressure off of the nerve instead of pushing pressure on the nerve Mm -hmm. so then you start going into like what are these people talking about with like deep tissue massage and then they're like well i just want deep tissue i want you to go in there hard because if it hurts then then it's doing something you know what i mean and then so then you're the the information that you're providing on that website is a perfect avenue to explain to these people i don't need to mash on this and it's actually not making it better it could potentially be making it worse and so you know and it's just uh you know just educating your clientele on what's going on so yeah i really appreciate that you put that information out there sure and i you know i think about it sometimes when i'm explaining it to people and they're like well should i foam roll and and you know or use that lacrosse ball and i'm like well you know you can um, I said, but essentially, it's almost like the nerve has a bruise on it. I said, if you had a bruise on your leg, would you mash it and and foam roll it? And you know, there are some rationales for doing very light touch, 
uh, yeah. manual therapy to try to clear that for sure. But, um, you know, most people, the lights come on with that. So anyway, we, you know, with the whole YAP stuff, it, you know, the reason why we need the name change, quite honestly, is because it's kind of more people are taking notice of it. And I think it dawned on me when people want wanted more literature and people wanted to do case studies on it. I'm like, there's no way in hell this is ever going to make it into a journal, you know, right. with a name like Yankaway Pain or YAP. And, right. uh, you know, and I was. I was asked to speak in front of a bunch of uh, physiatrists at the Kaiser Permanente, um, uh, the Northwest Kaiser Permanente office here in Portland. And I'm standing there with my hat in my hand in front of, uh, you know, 20 or more, um, uh, you know, specialist MDs explaining to them how this <clears throat> quote unquote yap stuff works. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the glances between them were, you know, absolutely precious. Yeah, granted, they uh, they got over it and they referred me a, a bunch of patients that they're not having success with uh, in the physiatry department. But uh, I figured that the writing was sort of on the wall that we needed to to change the name. So um, then let's go to what your uh, practice looks like, because you you know once I started going to all these uh, DNS courses, I started meeting a lot of chiropractors. And they were all wildly different from the experience of chiropractic care that I've had my whole life. Um, mm -hmm. So I'd like to hear what a typical session for you is because, you know, where I'm from, they, you know, they're the typical, we see as many people in an hour as we possibly can, <laughs> you know, crack you and you're done. And, you know, I got, I uh, am a CrossFit athlete and, um, Five years ago, I had a really bad uh, SI joint injury, and I go to my, you know, standard chiropractor, and then he starts adjusting my neck and my thoracic spine, and I'm like, look, I can't walk because of my SI joint, and I need you to look at that. And then, you know, does the standard care again, and he's just like, well, how do you feel now? And I'm like, well, I still can't walk, so what are you doing? And then, you know, I just start meeting all these incredible chiropractors at these DMS courses. And so, um, yeah, I'd really like to understand what your particular practice is like. Uh, well, uh, first off, I'm sorry that your exposure to my profession has been in that way. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We're trying to do we're trying to do better. Um, the uh, first off, I see patients on 30 minute intervals, uh, so considerably longer than that. But I will freely admit that uh, my colleagues that are uh, pushing them through at six minute intervals are driving much nicer cars than I do. Right. Um, <laughs> and, um, the uh, I, I'm I'm really strongly focused on uh, a patient-centered approach. So I treat people the way that I would like to be treated if I were a patient. And right. uh, I, I don't want a bunch of, you know, bullshit. I want somebody to shoot me straight, tell me what they think is wrong, how they're going to be able to help me if they are, and uh, what I can do to help myself. So that's basically what I do. Uh, not to make it sound too mystical, but um, the you know when I walk into the room with a patient, pain in and of itself is is a phenomena that occurs in the in the entire organism. It's not just a localized uh, nociception. It's how you think about it. It's how you feel about it. It's how you process all of those signals. Right. So when I walk in with a patient and I teach this to the students that I work with, the the, the first thing that's on my mind. Is where is the body perceiving threat? Where is the threat coming from? And that threat could be at the at the level of the brain. It could be at the level of the spinal cord. It could be at the level of uh, small nerves. It could be at the level of peripheral nerves. It could be at the level of instability of a joint complex somewhere, um, or some kind of uh, trauma, uh, you know, um, mentally, emotionally, or physically. So. I, I want to try to get to the the base node of where that's coming from so that I can get my lever under that to most effectively move that patient. And in moving the patient, what I mean there is my focus is on how to get them moving better right. and how, how to make them more functional. Um, I'm interested in moving them beyond just thinking about their pain and more about how the pain has affected their function um, in some way, form, or fashion. 
and then get inside what their goals are and help them work towards those goals uh, using typically movement-based solutions. And those movement-based solutions, even when I work with manual therapy or manipulation, are incorporated into the manual therapy as well. So um, I, I hope that's not too nebulous, but that's um, sort of what I do uh, when I work with patients. Right, and that's, and that's perfect. So, you know, because that's what I started thinking once I started going to these DNS courses and talking about these people. And they, you know, then I started thinking about all of my past uh, chiropractic experiences being like, well, how do you know if I've made any improvement? How do you know if I feel any better? Like, what is this, you know, just come three days a week, you know, kind of indefinitely and not see any improvement from that. And then, you know, everybody, every chiropractor in town operates the same way. So then people just kind of go from one chiropractor to the other and never feel any relief from that. And so that's why I'm greatly appreciating there's there's this huge shift that's starting to happen where, you know, chiropractors like such as yourself and then a, uh, a few others that I've met through these courses are really working hard to make the patient the priority instead of the money the priority. Because like if you're, like you said, if you're a chiropractor and you're driving a really nice car, then you're probably not giving the patient what they need. You know what I mean? Well, I hope I hope that's not mutually exclusive at some point, but because uh, right. <laughs> I'm because I'm driving a 16 year old Subi. But, yeah. <laughs> but but um, yeah, I, I think the uh, the the focus has been far too much on uh, uh, patients as commodities as opposed to patients as individuals. Uh, right. And in uh, in the past, and towards that too, you know what I. I think a lot of the work that I do could be uh, sort of described as uh, neurocentric. I really think in in that threat that I was talking about earlier, I'm really trying to find out what level of neurology might be affected, where in the CNS or where in the, the PNS that neurology is being affected. And um, let me take your, yeah, let, let me take your example of your injury you had while you were um, in your uh, your CrossFit workout that had you so you couldn't walk. Yeah. Um, and, and you noted it was an SI joint. How did you know that it was an SI joint? So it wasn't actually uh, during a CrossFit workout. I was uh, videotaping one of my friends who is a really um, – exceptional dimness and he was walking down stairs on his hands which theoretically should be harder than what i was doing which was walking down the stairs backwards and so, <laughs> the so, yeah so um i thought i was on the the last step but i was on the fourth step up and i took a big step backwards and then so you know i came down from about two and a half feet up and on that one right leg and just felt that jolt through, like, my whole entire body. Um, you know, low back hurt pretty bad. Um, you know, I was over it in a couple of days. I didn't do any CrossFit for, um, you know, four, four or five days, and I was feeling really good. And then I started, you know, warming up my back squat to start doing a squat workout. And then at the bottom of my fifth squat, I was like, hmm something doesn't feel right. And then so I dropped the bar and then laid on the ground for two hours. And then that was pretty much it. I couldn't walk for uh, probably four or five days after that. Yeah. The, uh, the reason I asked, uh, Jesse is because it, you know, you were talking about the three time a week phenomena. I'm not sure why that uh, number ever came up that way in our profession, Right. but I cannot tell you how frequently we see, patients in our clinic that have been going to uh, Cairo for three times a week to manipulate an SI joint that keeps going, quote, unquote, out. Right. And I can't tell you that since shifting our focus over to, to a neuro perspective, how infrequently I've seen a frank injury or presentation that uh, where most of that threat I was speaking of is coming from the SI joint itself. 
it's terribly uncommon. Yeah. And more often the the SI joint is presenting that way because the body is experiencing a threat that's causing some sort of an antalgic posture, usually a lateral antalgia, QL and the uh, psoas typically most uh, affected. And that can have a an effect on the uh, the motion segment at the SI, but yeah. still does not make it primary. Right. Often that that actual injury is at the level of the motion segment in the spine, either the disc or an unstable um, uh, motion segment that the body is trying to protect. Uh, and, and I say that it's not trying to protect a disc, it's trying to protect either a nerve root or the spinal cord, typically with the presence of an injury there. Right. At least that's, at least that's what we think. Right. And when you look at it from that lens, a lot of stuff makes more sense. Yeah, you yeah. can clear the SI, you can work on the SI a little bit to get, to reduce the hypertonicity if it's time to reduce the hypertonicity. You know, yeah. if you go in and work that hypertonicity, uh, too early, when it's there as a protective mechanism, then the body will fight you for that. Um, and many of us in our profession have had that experience. You get somebody in with uh, with a really severe antalgic position. You put them on the table, and their antalgia gets better, of course. And you do all your rubby dub and your steamy cream, and uh, get everything set. And then the patient tries to stand up or roll over from that, and they immediately go into spasm again. Right. So. Um, the, uh, what I find is a, as a much better way is to, you know, use some of the McKinsey type of work to, uh, reduce that threat and the hypertonicity goes away, um, very quickly. The only downside to that is you don't need it three, you don't need to be treated three days a week, right? You yeah. can teach somebody how to do that kind of stuff themselves and help themselves and reduce their need for care. But, you know, again, that's not so good for business. Right. And, you know, that's, uh, unfortunately, that's like, if that's the driving force of your practice, then I think that you're doing it wrong, just personally. Because yeah, so that's, I. yeah. And so, um, you know, the, I think back then, so that was, uh, 2015, um, no, 2013, I'm sorry. So 2013, you know, I was really, um, I was just kind of going to community college, had basic, basic anatomy and physiology knowledge and, you know, just kind of instinctually started, you know, trying to stabilize my core and then eventually that um, started to get better. And so now that um, with all the education that I have, especially through like DNS protocols, now I have all these these uh, exercises that I can give to people in order to stabilize that and make it stronger so that that threat is no longer there. And is that how you use DNS in your practice? Yes, it is. Uh, that's exactly correct. Um, the DNS, among other things, I'm also a big proponent of Stu McGill's work. Um, yes. I find, I find that you can, uh, you can put those, uh, those two together and, uh, especially with a different timing, uh, sequence. Um, uh, I uh, also have a, a couple of, of websites that I run as well that are subscription-based. One is um, called MyRehabExercise.com. Uh, it originally started because of the work that I did. Um, you know, I blew a disc in my back in my first year of practice and had to sort of bootstrap it when everybody uh, went to see all of my old professors and stuff. We're striking out left and right, trying to solve it with a, uh, a manipulation solution. So I got into the literature and uh, found Stu McGill's work and uh, started applying, and I started to feel much better. So uh, this is about the time that uh, YouTube was purchased by Google, and uh, suddenly I noticed uh, a lot of people started showing up in my clinic um, after trying uh, exercise videos on YouTube that were put out there by well-meaning personal trainers that really didn't know what the hell they were doing. Right. And uh, so people were, were injuring themselves. So I put this website together just for my own patients that had uh, McGill's Big Three exercises on it. And right. I'd, send, I'd send them to that website to, to do that homework. And then uh, a bunch of... Uh, 
uh, docs started to find it and it was, you know, open source and free. Like I said, it was for my patients only. I saw it. Right. And, uh, and they said, well, you know, why don't you put some more exercises on there and, uh, and charge a little something for the site. So I did. That's what my rehab exercise is. Right. And then, uh, along the lines of your question with the, uh, the DNS and McGill and how to put those together, I was working with a patient one day in the clinic um, who had a disc injury and, and got him, uh, you know, he was a weightlifter and he was, you know, in an eight out of 10 in the waiting room. And in an hour, we had him pull away from the floor. And uh, he, you know, tearfully asked me at that point, he says, where the hell was I supposed to learn this? Right. I'm like, you're, you're exactly right, man. I mean, this is... Uh, in, in the space of that hour, it wasn't because of a whole lot of work that I did on him. I showed him how to do things and then showed him how to move differently in a way that his body could uh, sustainably uh, develop. And uh, that was the uh, the beginnings of the, uh, the site Fix Your Own Back, which is uh, sort of a plug-and-play solution for folks that have uh, a disc injury in their low back and they're trying to figure out how to get it better. Uh, as much as possible on their own. That's uh, I feel like that's really important because I have a client right now who's a nurse that has, you know, hurt his back uh, trying to pick up a patient. You know, it could be anything. Anything could, you mm-hmm. know, fire that back up, mainly because of the, you know, what DNS talks about where everything that we're supposed to be doing is core to extremity. But, you know, as people grow and as they get, older they don't use their core as much they they don't use the quarter extremity and then that's how they get hurt is because they're using only extremity is that correct uh that's uh, from a dns perspective that would be accurate yeah right. um being able to uh engage from in to out is uh is a pretty important com- uh um you know uh, uh notion in their their work and you can right. go all the way back to to Paul some of Paul Hodge's work on that as well. Uh, you know, when you move your arm, your your uh, transversus and your obliques are the first group of muscles that contract uh, to provide, right. as they would say in DNS, that that fixed point or punctum fixum to uh, to attach the extremity to. And same thing with the legs. Right, and so um, and I think that the a lot of the stuff that I learned in DNS is really important for CrossFit because I think um, there's a lot of injuries coming out of CrossFit because there's certain standards that everybody has to do the second that they walk in the gym. And I feel like that's really unrealistic. And I've been doing CrossFit for eight years. Um, I still coach it every day, but there's certain issues that I see within it and that I've had been trying to correct at least in my own gym because um there's the uh, clinical psychologist Jordan Peterson that says if you want to change the world you got to clean your room first, and so yeah. you know, <laughs> right? So, so you know, I'm trying to clean up my gym, and so one of the things is like there's some people that should not be coming into your gym and just starting with deadlifts if they don't know how to organize their spine and organize their core. So then you got to be able to regress and pass that to you know like the DNS protocols the the crawling position. If they can't do the crawling position, then they need to do, you know, rolling patterns and stuff like that. So, um, and then, you know, squatting, that's another problem too. Like some people just can't squat below parallel. So then why are we making them squat below parallel or supporting load overhead? I mean, you could go, you know, any number of directions, but I feel like that's where a lot of injuries are happening. And then that's why, you know, the, CrossFit is deemed dangerous, but it's not really if you have responsible coaches. You know what I mean? So um, I I know exactly what you mean, and I couldn't agree with you more. There's a lot of really cool stuff in CrossFit. I mean, not the least of which it's the elephant in the rooms. It gets people off their ass and off of the couch right. and gets them moving. Right. And uh, you know we've got a we've got a a problem in our <clears throat> you know, current modern world with people not being active enough. Uh, so anything that kind of fosters that, uh, to my mind, is a really good start. Another is community. Um, yeah. You know, the community that develops in uh, in CrossFit boxes is a beautiful thing to see. 
the uh, the downside is that, uh, as you mentioned, there's a lack of um, in in many boxes. Blessedly, just like in my profession, the way mine's changing in CrossFit, um, you're seeing changes from folks like yourself that are uh, are seeing the high prevalence of injuries, and there's some room for assessment that is coming in for the individual and noting that yeah, maybe everybody shouldn't just be thrown into the deep end of the pool and let's see who's able to swim. Um, And then the final thing that really kind of uh, pushes people over the edge is the, um, some of the, the early CrossFit sort of notion that we learn through failure and then the extension within that uh, to you're going to work in a particular exercise to the point of failure. And then, Give me just one more. Right. And that that happens. That's where the injury happens all the time. Yeah. Because the 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 false falseness and the uh or the fallacy in that we learn through failure is that while we're learning in development, we're not throwing weight over our head. Correct. And we're not we're we're dealing with our own body and we're also right. a lot closer to the floor. Yeah, we don't have accumulated years of uh, of inactivity. So right. um, when uh, when people get into that position and they're coached to uh, work beyond their capacity, then that's when things break. And uh, right. when that that happens, uh, all too often it means that that person can't go back and do that thing that they enjoy. So I applaud right. you in getting in there and trying to make a change so folks can keep working on those positive aspects of the process of CrossFit and, uh, and clean up some of the, uh, the dirty laundry that's there. Right. And like I said, uh, you know, I've been doing CrossFit for eight, eight years. I continue to do it and I continue to coach it. And, you know, a lot of what I have been talking about is the negative aspects of CrossFit because that's what's most prevalent to me right now. But like you mentioned before, the, the community is huge. And so the community is what, you know, gets people driven to keep coming back because, you know, there, and there is a, it is a vehicle for people that have no idea where to start. And so, um, you have to think like, you know, the, one of the best things about, um, CrossFit is you don't have to just kind of make stuff up. You don't have to look at a magazine like a muscle and fitness magazine and be like, well, I guess I could add this today or that or, you know, maybe throw some of this in there and then you see some of those gym fail videos that you see on the Internet. Right, right. Right. So, you know, you have a community of people that encourage you. You have, you know, the workout written on the board so you don't have to think about it. And then you just come in and you do it and then you're done. You know, and I think that it's just the narrative of CrossFit that has to change. And I think a, there was a big shift when, like, the CrossFit Games became more prevalent because then everything had to be that competition standard. Like, you know, the hip crease below parallel on the squat. Well, what if, you know, this person isn't 18 years old? What if they're in their late 30s or early 40s and they haven't squatted ever? Like, what if just them squatting is good? What if them, you know, doing a half squat is good it's just it's better than not squatting at all and so i think that it's not crossfit that really needs to change it's the narrative that needs to change and i think that you know the 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 extreme part of it kind of needs to go away like i don't think that tearing your hands is cool like you probably don't need to be doing enough pull-ups to where you tear your hands it's not necessary you know so kind of stuff like that and then i think that it's uh it's just got to constantly evolve and like i said i'm i'm starting by cleaning my room and i'm trying to clean up my local gym and then maybe we can spread out from there so you know the the idea behind this podcast is to try and kind of spread that um, message a little bit and uh also you know i'm really trying to get at those uh, massage therapists that you know like i said before is they're just coming out of school they don't really know what to do um and you know, trying to aim them in specific directions. And so, you know, like the reading uh, David S. Butler's book, The Sensitive Nervous System, was huge for me, mm-hmm. huge. Like, you know, the, all the, uh, the the nerve gliding techniques, I just couldn't, you know, uh, I 
couldn't believe the first time I saw that, the effect of just getting the nerves to just glide through the tissue with the techniques that David Butler has in that book. Just the amount of change that happened in that person's body. And then, you know, I took another course uh, through Rock Tape where they were talking about how you're not necessarily working with the muscles, you're more working with the nervous system because the nervous system controls those muscles. And then that ties back in with what you were saying about, you know, the peripheral nervous system and how, you know, there's some peripheral nerves that are trapped in the fascia. And once you get those nerves to relax, then the muscle relax and then nerves relax and then that trigger point's gone, essentially. And so, you know, I just think that this is all really important information for everybody to know. And like you said, you know, studying across your, you know, and outside of your field is also really helpful too. You know, so uh, once I got... um once I got done with the DNS courses and I just really started focusing on strength and conditioning, you know, like you were on the Kabuki Strength Podcast. What are those guys doing? You know, the the Michael Boyles, what are they doing? Craig Levinson, what's he doing? You know, just following all these different people and just learning a substantial amount from that. And there's just so much out there in the world. You should just read and listen to every podcast possible and just have this, you can just have this constant input and never get bored. And I just think that, you know, that's the word in this age of information and you just shouldn't be wasting it. That is indeed true. Uh, there's uh, a variety of places to, uh, to learn from this day and age and uh, skill sets can go up very quickly if you're uh, a discerning uh, consumer of that kind of information. So. Right, and then you know the the you kind of touched on it a little bit, uh, but the you know there's the biopsychosocial approach to pain. So then you just like if you start studying the psycho the psychological aspect of pain, then there's a whole new world there that you know potentially you can affect and potentially you can't. And then you know that's when you have to, as a therapist or uh, whatever your profession is, that might you might have to refer them out to somebody because that pain might not be a physical thing; it might be a psychological thing. Yeah, that's uh, total totally true. Um, the uh, what I I will say that what I have seen in uh, in the bodywork space is perhaps an over uh, an over uh, concern about that pain neuroscience uh, aspect of things. And I think part of it is because um, the the nature of most people's body work uh, limits the amount of things you can do with um, a oftentimes naked person on a massage table under a sheet. Right. So, um, you know, you can talk to them at least while you're working with them. But I've seen uh, some frothing at the mouth um, uh, body workers out there that are like, well, you know, pain is all in the brain. All of it is in the brain. And, you know, there it's like, it's like I try to, you know, working with students, I've been reading that pain neuroscience literature since it's been coming out, just like everything else. And I've tried to integrate it into my practice over the years in the same way. And uh, candidly, if that's what you're leading with, then you probably, I think, need a new toolbox. Unless right. either that, or you're working in a very, very restricted, chronic, chronic, nasty pain uh, uh, environment um, or tertiary or quaternary care type of uh, clinic. But, um, you know, the way I put it to students is every, every single person that walks in the door needs an understanding of some elements of pain science so that they can understand how their body processes that. But um, it's, it's probably the thing that you lead with, fewer than 5% fewer than of your patients are going to need that as the primary intervention that you're doing. Um, right. There's so much more that you can do with, uh, you know, with your uh, uh, exercise and manual therapy. Right. And then the, I think the exercise is really important because whatever manual therapy you do, you need to make that more neurologically permanent, which is what the exercise is for, correct? Exactly. Right on. So um, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, uh, but I do like to ask people 
um, that have come on. What are you reading right now, and what are you studying right now? Oh, the good uh, Tim Ferriss questions there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean there's, uh, millions of, there's millions of books out there, and I need suggestions. You know, I my sometimes my Kindle wish list gets a little low, so I need to refill that sucker back up. Well, the the thing that is on my uh, bedside table right now is uh, Steven Pinker's new book, uh, Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. Um, I uh, am reading that as an antidote to our current political situation in, uh, in our country and um, those of us that are on whichever side of the uh, the current arguments that seem to be so rife out there and none of us getting along well with each other anymore, um, right. whichever side you seem to be on, uh, there, there seems to be so much hyperbole that things are just horrible, absolutely horrible now, regardless yeah. of your vantage point of, uh, of uh, on the political spectrum. And uh, Pinker brings actual data to the table and gives a compelling argument that um, uh, the principles of the Enlightenment movement um, uh, of, as he has read on the cover, you know, reason, science, humanism, and progress, are a slow and steady trend, blessedly, in our species. And uh, it, uh, that has, has been and continues to be uh, the trend right now. So that, um, it, I find, is a breath of fresh air when you actually look at the data. Uh, maybe we're not, you know, sliding towards hell in a handbasket. <laughs> well, I mean, that's really important, I think, right now is the breath of fresh air because I think that, you know, part of the problem is that there's one side that thinks this way and there's one side that thinks that way and whatever side you are the other side's wrong and there's no conversation happening right there. Yeah. yeah. So I think that uh, that's part of the problem. Um, you know, there's other obvious parts of the problem, but you know, I don't really want to get into that right now, but yeah, I appreciate that uh, suggestion. All right. All right. And uh, thank you again so much for being on my podcast. Uh, I really appreciate your time. It's been a pleasure, Jesse. Best of luck. Take All care. Right. Man. We'll yeah. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.